Hello and welcome to episode 1823 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? We have no time to talk about how I am. <laughs> <laughs> we must dispense with the pleasantries. There's just too much news. <laughs> too much news. Too many things. So much to cover. I mean, it's a welcome change from having nothing to cover for a few months, and it has been a great relief to focus on other baseball stories that have nothing to do or at least less to do with, let's say, the competitive balance tax, for instance. If I don't hear those three words in sequence for a while, that'd be nice. Although, obviously, they do affect some moves that are made or not made. But we're not focusing so much on the ins and outs of the CBA as we are about baseball transactions. And there have been a ton of them so spring training has started excuse me spring training presented by camping world has started (laughs) and that's always accompanied by a bunch of news about injuries and position changes and such but beyond that about a quarter of an off season just got crammed into three or four days (laughs) so We're not going to talk about every transaction because you can go read written coverage of even the most minor move at Fancrafts.com, which Meg has been very busy coordinating and will probably be coordinating while we do this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully teams will hold off for an hour or so while we speak here. But you can read about everything, even little reliever moves. There is a, a post for all of you out there, but we'll talk about all the major moves, but There is also some general baseball news that we should probably touch on before we even get to the transactions. Some of it good, some of it bad. And maybe leading the list of bad news is that the zombie runner (laughs) seems to be back from the dead or the undead. It's, It's about to be back again at just when we thought it was safe to play extra innings. We are now faced with the prospect of the zombie runner being reinstituted, which is not official as we speak, but all signs seem to be pointing to it being back. And this is really depressing. <laughs> I was so excited for a season without the zombie runner, and it's even more cruel that they have dangled that prospect in front of me and then yanked it away. As many people pointed out when we tweeted about this like we do call it the zombie runner rule and it's proven to be apt here i just don't we were so close you know i feel like i feel foolish ben i feel like we were in a, a horror movie and i briefly let my guard down and now there's been a a jump cut and a monster Mm -hmm. has claimed me and i just hope that others can soldier on in my absence and we're not had in quite the same way so i don't know i just don't uh, i just don't think that we really need to be doing this but here we are doing it so you know it's like a lot of things in the world these days i'm just left asking why Yeah, there was a report in The Athletic from Jason Stark and Matt Gelb that said that MLB is pushing for it and that also the union seems to be pretty much in favor of it. Sources said the union surveyed player reps for all 30 teams Sunday to gauge player interest. Early indications are that players heavily support it. This is like how I'm going to get red-pilled into becoming one of those people on Twitter who's like, these players, they just got to get out there and take whatever and stop moaning about playing conditions and salary. They're playing a kid's game out there. What are they complaining about? 
this is what's going to drive me over the edge, I think. Not anything that actually happened in the CPA negotiations, but this is not surprising, I suppose, but it's still upsetting. Just the fact that the league is in favor of it, players are in favor of it, fans are not in favor of it, but we're just powerless in this instance. I've used my platform here to advocate for a return to regular extra innings, and it just doesn't seem to be happening. And I guess I get why players like it, and I guess I get why the league likes it, but it bums me out, and there's just nothing we can do except impotently whine about (laughs) being subjected to the zombie runner again. Well, we do have a podcast, Ben, so we're we're in good company when we impotently whine about stuff. <laughs> yeah. I think people calling it the ghost runner annoys me almost as much oh, as yeah. the fact of the thing. Yes. It's not a ghost runner. No. There is a real runner. I have yep. made this point before, but it just doesn't seem to be landing with the media at large. We already had a thing called the ghost runner. Yep. It's what kids play with when they don't have enough people, and so there's just an imaginary runner who advances station by station, at least that was how we did it when I was a kid. The point was, there was no actual physical runner on the bases. This is not a ghost runner. There is a runner. There is a flesh and blood runner on the bases. This is different from the concept of the ghost runner. And I think it annoys me even more because we have such good alternative terms for it. Not just the zombie runner, which I have advocated and which I think Dan Simborski coined originally, Mm -hmm. but even Manfred Mann. If you want to go with the Manfred Mann, that's clever too. I prefer zombie runner, but either one is both more accurate and more fun. Yeah. If we have to be stuck with this thing, then let's at least have a little fun with the term and be accurate. So yeah. if <laughs> if they have to bring it back, I'm just appealing to everyone. Don't call it a ghost runner. How can you not be pedantic about baseball, I guess, at least on this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, it is our sort of MO, isn't it? But yeah, yep. I don't know. We'll just we'll just have to bob and weave, Ben. It's coming for all of us. So that's my latest zombie runner rant. No time to linger on that because there is so much else to get to. So as far as other experimental rules and rules changes, there were some announcements about the experimental rules that will be in place in the minors this season and also in the Atlantic League. And it's a lot of the same sort of stuff, pitch clocks, bigger bases, shift bands, robo zones, largely the same or tweaked a little or implemented at more levels than they were before. In the Atlantic League, there's a modified double hook DH rule and the return of the dropped pitch rule where the batter can run to first on any pitch not caught in the air and if they reach they're credited with a hit which is weird but maybe less weird than the way it was credited in the past the only really new wrinkle on all of this is that in low a southeast this season MLB will test a challenge system in select games in which umpires call balls and strikes and the pitcher, catcher, and batter have an ability to appeal the umpire's call to the ABS system, the automatic ball strike system. In challenge games, each team will receive three appeals. Successful appeals will be retained. So what do you make of the challenge system as opposed to straight up RoboZone 24-7? I feel like I'm out of step with our contemporaries, Ben, because Uh this is my preferred approach. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I know that part of this is that, like, I know Joe Sheehan has railed against this, but I think that Mm -hmm. his view on the RoboZone is maybe different than ours. He's he's pro-RoboZone. Am I remembering that right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's where the, the real divergence probably comes in. But I like this as a way of 
sort of addressing what I think we all agree is the real problem that the RoboZone is meant to address, which is the egregious, egregious call that sort of alters the course of the game, right? Mm -hmm. We don't want one mistake that is to the naked eye wrong to change the entire complexion of of a contest but we also want to keep things moving and we you and i see benefits to a human zone that outweigh the benefits of a robo zone and i think that those benefits can can come in tandem with you know having sort of more stringent rules and expectations of umpires and making sure that the umpire core is sort of changing as it ought to and incorporates new and younger umpires and you know is is sort of subject to checks and balances but this is this is what peak performance looks like to me ben <laughs> and i know that people don't like it but i would invite those people to consider whether or not they're wrong <laughs> I will have to consider that too because I'm not sure I like this. I see what you're saying. I'm with you on the RoboZone in general and not really preferring one. But if you are going to bring the RoboZone into it, then is this kind of making it seem as if, well, if you're going to have a challenge system, why even bother? Like if the point is that we're just going to try to get the most calls correct and have things go by the rulebook zone and have it all be predictable for the players, then why have it be half measures? I mean, you're saying that maybe half measures are better than full measures because you don't like the full measures and I don't like the full measures either. So it seems like I should think that too. But I feel like the closer we get to RoboZone without just having RoboZone, it almost just seems like, why are we still putting up a fight? Like, if you're already, currently, you have umpires graded based on basically RoboZone or a more accurate version of the RoboZone. They get readouts after the game to say, here's how you did. Here's how accurate you were. Here's how you can be better. And so I think that leads a lot of people to say, well, why not just have the computers do the calling then? Now, if you were going to do this, you would preserve some value to framing and receiving, which I like, and to having pitchers maybe be able to expand the zone a little through their own prowess and command, which I can kind of get on board with too. So maybe, as you say, you're just getting rid of the more egregious ones, but there are a lot more than three mistakes, technically, in any given game on ball strike calls. And so what if those mistakes happen early in the game? Then you just say, well, I used my challenges, so now we're just going to live with the screw-ups. And I just don't know, like, if we're going to get that close to it, maybe we just surrender and say, well, here's how it's going to be. You know, is there a pace of play concern, too? How long would it take to do the challenges and review? Maybe it would be quick, right? I mean, yeah. maybe maybe the umpires just get a, a little readout in their helmet or whatever. Yeah. There's a, a tone in their earpiece that says, and then when the manager comes out and says, I challenge, then the umpire would just instantly be able to say, yeah. okay, I, I overrule myself or, or the system overrules me, and there wouldn't be a big delay. So maybe that concern is overblown. I don't know. It just it feels like fighting against a slippery slope that is inevitably going to win. Because if you just accept very publicly and you put it in the rules that the computer is better at calling balls and strikes and that we're going to defer to the computer when managers challenge, 
then what grounds do you have for not just doing that all the time and and just saying, well, why be more accurate on three calls a game or six calls a game when we could be more accurate on all calls a game? Well, I have an answer to that, which is that (laughs) we like some of the things that happen when a human umpire is calling the game. Mm -hmm. And we have plenty of precedent for this. We don't have a booth in New York call safe or out at uh, right. first base, right? We mm-hmm. we have a challenge system already. There's already an infrastructure and sort of a philosophy behind this, which is that we accept that there is some amount of human error to the game. We generally think that having these calls emanate from the field is right. We want teams to be judicious with their challenges, which is why we don't give them an infinite number. And on balance, this allows us to course correct on the biggest mistakes while still maintaining the aspects of the system that we think are useful. So there you mm-hmm. go. I think yeah. that I think that that's the answer. And everyone should just agree with me. We can move on. And then <laughs> right. and then we don't have to talk about it ever again. Instead, we can talk about how Fernando Tatis Jr. should stop oh, riding man. motorcycles. Yeah. So Fernando Tatis Jr. in a blow to the Padres and also to baseball as a whole. Yeah. Sounds like he may miss half the season in the worst case and that's a big (laughs) big disappointment baseball's back but Fernando Tatis Jr. not going to be a part of it for a while so yeah he shows up at Padres camp and it's a little unclear to me how this happened but based on the reporting I have read it sounds like I mean he has certainly been in more than one motorcycle-related mishap, right? (laughs) And at some point over the offseason, he was involved in one of these motorcycle accidents, and it seemed like there weren't any serious injuries associated with it at first, although he was photographed at some point over the offseason wearing some kind of cast or sling of some sort, which people wondered about. But he shows up to spring training, and evidently he didn't think it was a serious problem at the time, But then he said when he started ramping up for spring training presented by Camping World, he realized that he was not fully healed. And it seems like this probably stems from that motorcycle mishap. I I guess I I haven't heard that 100% established, but certainly seems to be the case most likely. And now it looks like he's going to have to have surgery, although even that, I guess, hasn't been completely finalized as we speak here on Tuesday afternoon. But... If so, then he may miss up to three months, and that's on top of the lingering concerns about his shoulder, which he opted not to have surgery for and said his shoulder's fine, but there's some underlying concern about whether that injury could recur, and now you have the wrist injury where sometimes you have to worry about the power not bouncing back immediately, even if players return, so... In that tight NL West where the Padres figure to have a real race in for them again with the Dodgers and the Giants as well, that's going to be a big downgrade no matter what they do, whether they bring in someone, whether they go with Hassan Kim in the short term or some other combination of their position players losing Fernando Tatis Jr. for any period of time. That's going to hurt. Yeah, it isn't good. It just really isn't good. I don't know that there's <laughs> anything else to say about that. It's a real yeah. bummer for all of us who enjoy watching him. It's a bummer for him. It's a bummer for the Padres. So, you know, it's always a tricky part of being a baseball player that you have to sort of maintain 
your your physical well-being in the months when you aren't playing and that requires giving up some stuff and that's you know it's a weird it's a weird balance to strike between one's personal life away from the field and and your obligations on it but i think that just don't ride motorcycles you know i i would make an argument we're gonna get emails about this but like they're so loud anyway just like don't don't <laughs> ride motorcycles generally even if you're not mm-hmm. a baseball player oh they zip through the neighborhood they're so loud yes become quite old since i moved to the semi-suburbs so yeah i don't know it's just it's a bummer it does feel like Unfortunately, we're really back in spring training because we got a, you know, a sea of injury updates that I had to, um, yep. you know, message Jason Martinez about. So I don't know, yeah. like some players show up in the best shape of their lives. Some people show up with a fractured wrist. So yeah. I don't know whether this is a case where the lockout may have had an impact on how this was treated or not treated because yeah, I don't know. <laughs> there was a strange state of affairs where Fernando yeah. Tatis Jr. couldn't talk to the Padres and they couldn't talk to him and. I guess, according to Dennis Lynn's report, they did reach out somehow through intermediaries maybe to find out like, hey, that thing you're wearing on your wrist, is that a problem? And, you know, he... I, I don't know, like, to what extent he was limited in seeing other doctors or, like, could he have had surgery without talking to the team and not being able to have team doctors play a part in that? So I would imagine that that may have delayed the diagnosis and potentially the surgery here. So that is a, another ramification of locking the players out for months at a time. Yeah. So that stinks. And I guess in happier news, there was a, another potentially even more catastrophic injury averted in that oh, Pete Alonso, gosh. he seems fine, <sighs> at least based on what we know now, but he walked away from a pretty serious car accident. And there's a video online, which I will link to, but his pickup evidently rolled three times when he was on his way to spring training presented by Camping World. I don't (laughs) actually have to say that every time. I won't keep up that bit for this entire episode, but it looks like the pickup was very banged up, but he got T-boned by a car and I didn't see what the other car looked like. And I wondered because Pete Alonso's basically driving a tank there. (laughs) I know that sometimes like, pickup injuries can be very bad for the people on the other end of them, even more so than the people in the pickup. So I don't know what happened there. I haven't heard, but fortunately he seems to be okay. And hopefully there are no lingering issues there, but that's a a disaster averted. Yeah, it was, it was very, it was very scary. And, you know, he's like, oh, I'm ready to go back on the field. And I wanted to be like, Pete, do you need a day? Like, I think it'd be fine if you took a day to like, you know, recover even just mentally and emotionally from what had to be a very scary incident. Also, I don't want to trivialize any of this, but like how strong is Pete Alonso that he can just like kick the windshield out of his car? I'm given to understand that that's challenging. So we might get emails about that too. But yeah, um, you know, sometimes you have very strange thoughts when your job is being like the assigning editor at a website. And one of the thoughts I had to have this week was, I'm sure glad I didn't have to assign a Pete Alonzo obituary. So we're very happy that he is well and whole and seems to be doing okay. And gosh, that's just a very scary thing that we're glad Mm -hmm. we didn't have to um, think too hard about in, in a scarier direction, I guess. Yeah. Uh. I have never attempted to kick out a windshield, so I cannot testify personally to <laughs> how hard that is, but it can't be easy, right? Right. So, they they kind of design them to stick in there. Yeah, you'd think. 
And just the last little bit of spring training news is that Mike Trout reported to spring training and Joe Madden (laughs) brought up to the media that Mike Trout might be moving out of center field for the first time in his career without having run that by Mike Trout, evidently. (laughs) It's interesting. You know, the Angels are kind of a disaster of an organization in some ways, but I would say that... Joe Madden has excelled in communication and people management in some respects, too. I was particularly impressed with how he handled Shohei Otani and communicated with him and let him do his thing last season. But this is not great when your franchise player who's been a center fielder his whole life, not that there aren't compelling persuasive reasons why it might make sense for Mike Trout to move out of center field. But that's not the sort of thing that you just bring up to the media and say, hey, we've had conversations internally about this. And yeah, maybe it makes sense. And then Mike Trout reads about that on Twitter (laughs) and then has a meeting with the GM and the manager in which he evidently firmly established that he prefers to remain in center field and that, in fact, he will be remaining in center field. So. I do see the case in that he's coming off injury-plagued seasons and he'd have to run less if you put him in left. And also the defensive metrics have not been strong for him in center of late or really for the most part since his rookie year. He hasn't been bad out there, but he hasn't been consistently above average either. So I get it. Like maybe Brandon Marsh is the best center fielder on that team these days, but that is a conversation that you have to have in private first with your superstar franchise player before you just floated out there. I don't know whether he was hoping that the media would be like, yes, this makes sense, and the fans would be clamoring for this to happen or something, and that it would put pressure on Trout, or whether, as I think he said, he just hadn't had a chance to talk to Trout about it yet. But, you know, just wait, maybe, until you have that conversation to air it publicly. Yeah, we talk a lot about how being um, a manager uh, is mostly about people management, and that's why it feels a little silly for the writers to vote on manager of the year, because so much of the stuff that managers have to do and really have to do well happens away from our view. But sometimes we get a little glimpse, and and I bet they want the glimpse they gave us back, and I imagine this is one of those times. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And the last bit of news that broke just before we started recording is that it seems that Yankees and Mets players who are not vaccinated, and we are not sure whether that means fully vaccinated and boosted or got a shot or what, but the same rules that have prevented Kyrie Irving from playing for the Nets this season in home games seemingly will also prevent Yankees and Mets players from playing in home games unless those rules are changed between now and opening day, which could happen. But we talked last time about how we will probably be learning a lot about certain players who have to go on the restricted list when they go to Toronto because they cannot make the trip because they are not vaccinated. We may be learning a lot or at least confirming some things about Yankees and Mets sometime soon. And Aaron Judge, who is one of the Yankees who I will say is not known to be vaccinated, (laughs) he he was (laughs) asked about his status shortly before recorded. And he basically was like, "Uh, we'll we'll cross that bridge when I have to come to it or something. You know, he did not say, no, no worries. I am vaccinated. He didn't even go with an Aaron Rodgers. I am immunized or anything. He just kind of ducked the question which makes you wonder because, you know, if 
Aaron Judge or any other Yankee is unable to play games in New York or in Toronto. <laughs> right. That's, uh, that's most of your schedule. That's most of the season that yeah. comes off the board there. So yeah. that could be a bit of a problem. Doesn't need to be a problem. Could just get the shot. But yep. bit of a problem from the team's perspective if it cannot persuade its players to get the shot. Yeah. This is, you know, I guess the good news for those potentially affected by this is that there are so many problems in the world that we don't have an immediate and easy answer to. And this does mm-hmm. not fall in that <laughs> in that category of problem, right? This is a yeah. problem with both a very obvious solution and one that is widely, widely available. So, you know, I want the reason that people want to get this stuff to be that they have a sense of sort of community obligation and care toward the other people around them and, you know, probably are conscious of the fact that while you play baseball games on an outdoor field, you exist in the building for part of your day and that those, uh, you know, spaces are sometimes quite tight and poorly ventilated and so, like, it would be good to get the shot. Mm -hmm. But I would imagine that knowing that you are out of commission for your entire home schedule and the games you play (laughs) in Toronto might be uh, a sufficient, hopefully a sufficient motivator. So get Mm -hmm. on it, guys. Pretty easy. You'd think even if you were under the illusion that this might somehow impair your performance, you would think that it could not possibly impair your performance as much as missing most of your season. So (laughs) I know there may be more than that at stake and there may be some principles of some sort at stake for some of these players or political beliefs or whatever you want to call it. But yeah, there is an easy way around this. Although Yankees released a statement that said on behalf of the Yankees, Randy Levine is working with City Hall and all other appropriate officials on this matter we will have no further comment i would not be surprised if they figure out a way to get away around these rules or get the rules changed between now and april 7th but we will see I just continue to want to know so much less about your mayoral politics than I do, Ben. (laughs) Yeah, me too, frankly, but I live here, so. Right, I know so much about them. I know Mm -hmm. at at least as much about your mayoral politics as I do about my mayoral politics, and I just had to vote in a city council election, so... (laughs) Like, yeah, I do not know as much about Phoenix's mayoral situation. It's it's odd how it only works in one way. Yeah, isn't that odd? Isn't it <laughs> odd though? Just you know, I don't I don't need to know so much about your guys's guys and gals. Mm-hmm. I don't need to know like L.A. could know a lot less about what's going on in L.A. And I realize it's important, and a lot of people live there. And I'm not indifferent to the impact that it has on millions of real people. I'm just saying. I am not one of those millions of real people. And so a greater level of acceptable indifference would be appreciated. That's all. Yeah, understandable. At least it looks like the rest of the country could be getting on board with your time zones handling of daylight savings time. So that's something. Get on Arizona's level, a thing I get to say exactly (laughs) one time a year. Yes, and a rare issue with bipartisan support. Also (gasps) something that we really get to say. So Jerry DePoto is ready to transact. (laughs) We are ready to discuss some transactions. So where do we begin? With Williams Astadio signing a minor (laughs) league deal with the Marlins? That's the headline, really. Yeah. Well, I let me (laughs) let me say that I I submit that we should start with Atlanta and and Oakland. Yes, that, that seems that yeah. seems to be the marquee because we got we got a little we got a t- we got two two firsts here. Ben. Yeah, we got two two firsts. So 
Should we start with Matt Olson? Should we just start with the, the biggest move so far? Yeah, I think we should. Yeah, so... As we speak, Freddie Freeman remains a free agent, talking to various teams, and maybe there will be some resolution there sometime soon, but barring something very improbable, it does not seem like he will be returning to Atlanta. (laughs) In fact, he will be replaced by Matt Olson, Olson. who has not only been acquired by the Braves, but has been extended long-term by the Braves, so... This gave us some insight into two of the offseason's biggest stories, one of which was, will Freddie Freeman re-sign with Atlanta? And the other of which was, where will Matt Olson go? So now we know that it's to Atlanta. So the deal was catcher Shea Langoliers, Christian Pache, Ryan Cusick, Joey Estes to Oakland in exchange for Matt Olson. And Matt Olson subsequently has been extended by Atlanta to an eight-year contract, eight years, $168 million, that runs through 2029. So there are a couple ways to break this down, and I definitely want to get into how bittersweet this must be for Braves yeah. fans. Probably emphasis on the bitter for now, although maybe sweet long-term, perhaps. But for the A's, this is one domino of what will probably be a few, right? So it sounds as if Sean Manaya will be on the move. It sounds as if Matt Chapman may be on the move at some point, perhaps a little less urgently. But we've known for a while that the A's are going to be doing a teardown of some sort, whether they needed to or not. And this is a a big part of that, obviously, and that they have traded their best hitter, best player, probably, to the Braves. And it's a, a big prospect package they got back and you are more of a prospect person than I am and you've edited Fangrass prospect coverage here so what should we know about what the A's got back here because uh, again like Frankie Montas could be on the move like yeah. there will be more here they're transforming their farm system and we'll probably also get to the Chris Bassett trade a move right. that was already made to the Mets here so they did get Quite a a bit back, though. What? A couple top 100 prospects, at least, right? So the headliner here, at least from our prospect team's perspective, is Langoliers. He was ranked 70th overall on our top 100. Pache came in at 72nd. Langoliers is interesting for them for a couple of reasons. I mean, I think that the Eric and Tess and KG are pretty high on him. He wasn't the most highly ranked catcher in the top 100, but you might recall from our top 100 conversation that the top 100 was lousy with catchers. So him being the eighth ranked one is, isn't, you know, isn't anything to sneeze at. He is interesting for them, not only because of what he could potentially bring to the team himself, but what his presence there might mean for the long-term sort of future of Sean Murphy, <laughs> mm-hmm. because Langoliers is projected to sort of be a, you know, a, a big league regular and Murphy will come up on arbitration at some point here, which might mean that he could also be on the move in the next 18 months. Pache is the guy who people are probably the most familiar with. He is just like a truly superlative center fielder who might be able to hit Question mark, right? The the sort of big question for him is going to be how the bat progresses. He had one like really 
really good year uh, in the minors and then was sort of having a hard time breaking in on the Atlanta outfield at a time when they had a number of injuries and were giving at-bats to like Guillermo Heredia. So mm-hmm. it suggests that the, the bat is not big league ready, although I imagine he is going to get a fair amount of run in Oakland given their situation. As Eric and KG pointed out, like it's going to be really fun to watch him playing in that big old outfield. That's true, yeah. And the carrying tool here really is the defense, but uh, the bat will need to come along at least a little bit in order for him to really stick as a big league regular. And then the other two guys are a little further away. I think they're sort of exciting young pitchers, but they're not as close as Langoliers and Pache are. So mm-hmm. I think that the expectation is that, as I said, Pache will get a good amount of run at the big league level this year and that we might uh, expect that Langoliers starts the year at AAA, is added to the 40-man after the season, and then makes his debut in 2023. Mm-hmm. So you also mentioned some of the other guys who came over to to Oakland in a separate deal that they did with the Mets that netted them, JT Ginn and Adam Aller. That combination of moves has had a a not small impact on where Oakland's farm system ranks for us. So we're not completely done with our org list, which means that we're not ready to release our farm system rankings. But the back of the envelope math means that they have moved from near the very bottom of the farm system rankings, which is where they were at the end of last season, to sort of being in the bottom of the middle third. And given that we expect that there will be more movement here, as you said, with Montas and potentially Sean Manaya, and then whatever they end up doing with Matt Chapman. Yeah, or maybe Ramon Laureano, who is maybe expendable now. He's right. still serving his PD suspension. Right, but, yeah, yeah. yeah. The that they might end up being sort of middle of the pack within the next couple of months. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that one thing that Eric and KG noted in their piece, which is interesting for us to think about with respect to the A's, is that they have, and here I am quoting from them, had a penchant for adding near-ready prospects via trade. That may be because they have more info on those players and feel better about what the hit rate on those prospects will be, which would make sense because the intense budgetary restrictions put on the front office by the team's ownership gives them less margin for error around prospects, but could also result in them returning to respectability, if not outright contention, more quickly than teams like, say, Baltimore or Pittsburgh, which have tended to target prospects who are further away from the big leagues. So I don't want to say this is good if you're an Oakland fan. I mean, I think these prospects are good. I know that this experience feels really icky. If you want to feel optimistic, there might be a quicker turnaround for this kind of thing than there are for some of the longer, more down-to-the-studs rebuilds that we've seen, but none of that resolves the fundamental issue that Oakland faces, which is that their ownership group is just really uninterested in spending any money. So, you know, real mixed bag, and then a mixed bag (laughs) of feelings for, for Atlanta fans, I I would imagine right and that's the thing yeah and maybe when we talk about the reds a little later maybe we can do a compare and contrast Ooh. with what the reds are doing and what the a's are doing and whether there is any distinction to draw between those two teardowns or whether they're mostly the same but i think most people are probably interested in what this means for the braves and freddie freeman more people than are interested in what it means for oakland's minor league system though that is important too but if you had told me that this was going to happen the day after the world series I would have been shocked. (laughs) I mean, I'm not so shocked by it now just because it was going on for so long, this saga of are they going to bring Freddie Freeman back or what? What's taken so long? And we got to wonder about that throughout the entire lockout. 
And there were reports, and again, it's hard to know how credible some rumors and reports are, but from what we heard, it didn't seem as if Freeman was asking for any kind of unreasonable contract. And given how good he is and how good he's been for so long and what he has meant to that franchise and the fact that they just won a World Series and that, as we know from publicly disclosed financial figures, they have money to spend, they could afford Freddie Freeman a fan favorite, a link to the Chipper Jones incarnation of the Braves, really never would have thought, especially given the fact that World Series winning teams, as we've discussed and I've written about before, tend to lock up a lot of their players. They tend to bring back most of their players for another go-around. And so the fact that they decided to move on from Freeman, now the fact that they got Olsen back, that cushions the blow substantially I would imagine and it turns it into a a different kind of thing if we were just talking about cutting loose a guy purely because of payroll concerns and not making any attempt to compete you can make a good case that the Braves are better with Olsen or that they will be better long term with Olsen we can talk about that but even if you think that's the case it is still tough to swallow for Atlanta fans to lose a guy like Freeman who's been so good for them for so long and just seems to be such a great guy to the extent that we can know anything about whether these guys are actually great guys or not. Like he is, you know, his public persona at least is among the most charismatic and engaging and likable players. And so to lose him and to lose him in this way, like it's not like they were just blown out of the water by some 10 year offer or something. You know, I don't know whether to believe the like, well, they were willing to give him five years, but he wanted a sixth year or something like if that's the sticking point then it's sort of hard to understand just because of the marquee value. You know, it just comes down to like the the cold economic calculus of here's what this guy is worth in dollars per war or whatever, and will we be better without him? And how do yeah. you quantify just what he means to the fans or how many fans he created there? And so Joel Sherman reported via a source that the Braves did not give Freeman or his representatives a heads up that the Olsen trade was coming. I can't verify that, and I don't know to what extent they were communicating at that point already. On the other hand, Mark Bowman tweeted that Alex Anthopoulos was holding back tears as he discussed having to make the trade, that it was the hardest thing he's had to do. Of course, he didn't have to do it. So the question is, like, is this just ownership really drawing a strict line despite the fact that Atlanta just won the World Series and got a whole bunch of playoff revenue and one would expect merch sales and season ticket sales and all the usual boosts you get after winning a World Series? Did they just say... We're not going to spend enough to keep this guy. And then Anthopolis said, okay, working within those constraints, I'm going to go get another superstar who maybe doesn't have the name value and reputation that Freeman does, but is four and a half years younger and is coming off a season that was every bit as good, if not better, and seems actually to be improving as a player and was obviously amenable to a long-term extension, which seems to be at quite a reasonable rate from Atlanta's perspective. So again, like war-wise or projections-wise or looking long-term at a player who is as good now and in theory could continue to be good for longer than Freeman, who is 32 and a half or so, You certainly see the rationale, but even if you see the rationale, it's just tough to say goodbye for Braves fans to Freddie Freeman. Yeah, and, you know, particularly when they made a point of 
of holding on to him throughout their entire right, rebuilds. Yeah. You know, they could have they could have netted, I I would imagine, very meaningful and high profile prospects, but they held on to Freeman, I think in part so that when the rest of the roster was ready to coalesce, like they could just get going, right? They didn't have to worry about uh, replacing his war production. It was just going to be there because they had held on to him. And I think that we have at various times applauded them doing that because it, you know, it's not unusual for a team to be like right on the precipice and you look around and you're like, gee, it sure would be nice to have a, "Mm," but we just traded that guy away. And so I think that, you know, we can appreciate that decision while still acknowledging that this is is really challenging. I mean, I think that when you look at someone like Olsen, it's not as if there isn't some connection there. He's a hometown guy, right? I think that he'll be someone who yeah, that too. Atlanta fans can get really excited about. He is a, a superlative player. So I don't think that it is in the same, as you said, it's not in the same bucket as trading away, you know, a marquee player, a franchise icon, and then not doing anything to to shore up the position or commit to the right. roster long yeah. term, right? It's we not can't the Mookie Betts trade, right? Which, we... You know, the Red Sox returned to contention fairly quickly, but yeah. at least for that season, they were pretty much punting, you know, and and they're the Red Sox, and there's no reason why they right. should have to operate that way. And so, even if you say, well, this guy plus that guy long term, and we only right. had him under team control for one more year, you know, they were within striking distance playoff wise. And he meant so much to that team. And they weren't replacing him with someone who was very comparable in terms of performance, which is the case here. So, yeah, it's not in that bucket. Right. And so I think we can differentiate that. But I also think that an Atlanta fan would be perfectly justified in saying, in the short term, the projections aren't that different between these two guys. And I feel feelings about Freddie Freeman. And so I wish that we could have gotten that done. And, you know, if we had done that... You know, I I know that Dan came down on the side of saying, like, long term, the difference in production between Freeman and Olsen makes this package of of prospects worth trading in order to net Olsen. Obviously, that's going to come down to how you feel. Plus the the financial savings, not that a a fan has to care about that necessarily. Yeah, that part I don't think fans should have to care about. But, you know, I think that, you know, you can, Dan came down on the side of this is, this is worth it for Atlanta long term. This puts them in a better position to win both, you know, it keeps them in sort of a similar position to win short term and puts them in a better position to win long term. And I think that if you're a fan, and that's compelling to you that's perfectly reasonable and if you're a fan and you'd say but I love Freddie Freeman that's perfectly reasonable too I don't think that this like this move doesn't strike me as malfeasance Mm -hmm. (laughs) right or an abdication of the desire to win in the division and I don't think that we can sort of cast it in those terms but I I think that fans are are perfectly within their rights to prioritize sentimentality differently than a front office might and Mm -hmm. you know that doesn't make them sort of indifferent to the you know difficulties of constructing a good roster and you know we like these prospects but maybe you're an Atlanta fan and you're like I never think I don't think Pache's ever gonna hit Langoliers is whatever these other guys are far away it's a steal like I think there are a lot of reasonable interpretations of this and it's going to be really so very weird to see Freddie Freeman in not a brace uniform. Yeah, yeah it so, is. So I don't know. I think we can we can experience all of those things simultaneously. And, you know, I think that 
it won't take very long for Matt Olson to grow into like the hometown guy everyone's excited mm-hmm. to have back. But in this moment, it's it it lends itself to a lot of different feelings. So yeah. I do wish, I mean, all else being equal, I think it's nice and fun and heartwarming when you can have a player spend his whole career with a franchise and have that kind of relationship with the fan base. Obviously, it's not a good thing if it's because of the reserve clause and they don't have a choice and they just have to stay. But if they do decide to stay, if it turns out that it's advantageous to them to stay and the franchise wants to keep them around, then that's great. When you can get the Chipper Jones who spends his whole career there, then that's wonderful. But obviously, that's the exception rather than the rule and you can look at the teammates of Chipper on those great Braves dynasty teams and really almost all of them, all the others, did not spend their whole careers in that uniform. So it happens, but it seemed like Freeman might be one of those guys but, you know, you're one of those guys until you're not and something changes. So In this case, like, it didn't seem like there was any pressing reason to move on from him, and I don't know at what point they decided to, and I don't know when they decided on this Olsen deal. Like, did they work out the Olsen trade and the extension within, like, a few days of the lockout ending, or did they work out the trade in principle and then they talked to Olsen about it? I'd be interested in hearing the TikTok of how that happened. Yeah. Because it's uh, a lot to go down in a, a short span of time, but... We'll talk about Freeman again when he signs somewhere, but Olsen, you know, if you're an Atlanta fan wondering what you're getting in Olsen, like his last season was kind of incredible. What he was able to do, just slashing his strikeout rate almost in half compared to the shortened 2020 season, but significantly even compared to his previous seasons and not losing any power whatsoever and being a 39 homer guy with a 16.8% strikeout rate, which in this era is great and way better than average. So it just doesn't happen very often that you can make much more contact and still preserve your power, if not improve your power. And now for him to get out of that ballpark, a pitcher's park, and go to Atlanta and bring his great defense, which is probably even better than Freeman's, which was also good, you know, he doesn't have quite as long a track record of being great as Freeman does. He hasn't been around as long, but you're getting him when he has really just rounded into form and whether he can keep all of those contact advances while sustaining the power, I don't know, but he's definitely someone I would feel pretty comfortable about building around given his skill set and his age. So I think that really has to make you feel a lot better about something that you would have felt terrible about (laughs) under almost any other circumstances. And actually to highlight the rarity of a move like this Freeman departure happening, I asked frequent stat blast consultant Ryan Nelson to run some numbers. This is not a full stat blast, but I asked him basically to look for any kind of comps of a player like Freeman leaving a team after it won a World Series or even just won a pennant. And it's an extremely short list of times that that has happened. So like times when a player who had been with that franchise for 10 plus years and for his whole career left after a productive season. So we set the bar even lower than where Freeman was, just like a a three and a half war season and left after a, a pennant winning season. I know that's a lot of qualifiers, but you would think that a team that has a good player who has meant a lot to that franchise and just either won a World Series or at least made one would have money to spend and reason to bring that player back. So very, very rarely does that type of player depart. The only comps we could really come up with was 1926 Rogers Hornsby, who left 
to go to the Giants, and Hornsby was coming up a a down year for him, although still a, a productive year. And he left the Cardinals where he had spent his whole career to go to the Giants. But Hornsby was just a a jack wagon in general. And so I think that explains that. There was like a contract dispute and they didn't really want him to stay because he was prone to betting on the ponies, as they say. And so they were kind of happy to have him leave. The only other comp, another player who left the Cardinals, Albert Pujols. So if you're a Braves fan, I guess you could look at the Pujols departure as kind of a comp to this and say, well, in retrospect, that worked out, right? I mean, it was tough at the time for Cardinals fans to lose him, but in that case, they were blown away by the Angels' offer, which you can't really say. In this case, it it doesn't seem like, you know, the Angels are out there offering Freddie Freeman 10 years necessarily, but given how that worked out and how Pujols declined, not that was necessarily predictable, but that's a case where you can look and say, well, sometimes it's tough in the moment, but it works out in the long run. And then maybe you can bring him back for a farewell tour when he's 40-something, which I know has actually been discussed this week. That's that decision. Maybe we can talk a little bit about the Twins and the Reds. Maybe the Reds will lead us into the Twins and figuring out what they're doing these days. What are they doing? (laughs) What are they doing? No, but what are the Reds doing? It's so weird. I guess we know what the Reds are doing. They're tearing down, Ben. They're saying, how can we spend as few dollars as we possibly can? That seems to be the main goal here. Yep. How did uh, Nick Kral put it? Uh, bringing payroll in line with resources or something, which yeah. probably distorts the, the reality of the situation as well as putting it in a very unappetizing form. Yeah. I think he said something else about uh, you know sustainability when he was justifying these trades. I always love to hear that. But prior to the lockout, the Reds let Wade Miley leave on waivers and yep. save some cash there. And then Tucker Barnhart went away. That saves some money too. Now this week they have traded Sonny Gray to yep. the Twins for prospects or a prospect, right? The Twins' top draft pick last year. Correct, Chase Petty. Yeah, that saves them another $10 million. Yep. And then they make a deal with Mr. DePoto and the Mariners, and this is kind of a big one. So Jesse Winker and Eugenio Suarez from the Reds to the Mariners for Jake Fraley, Justin Dunn, and pitching prospect Brandon Williamson, which nets the Reds another $40 million or so. So I think they have slashed or are on pace to slash something like $70 million from their payroll, I believe. Yeah. And... That seems to be the main goal here. Now, I I mentioned earlier whether there's a distinction to draw between the A's and the Reds, and I'm not sure because they were in similar situations last year. The A's won 86 games. The Reds won 83 games. Maybe they both would have made the playoffs under expanded 12 playoff format. I know that the Reds would have, and I believe... Looking at Dan Borsky's projections, theoretical projections in a 12-playoff team system before that was made official, he had them with similar playoff odds. I think he had the A's at like 35% and the Reds at 25% to make the playoffs. So really, I mean, the A's won a few more games and may have even had better playoff chances if they had kept their team intact. With them, maybe it's partly just that we're used to it. I mean, (laughs) the A's have always operated this way. They are always extremely stingy and trying to find ways around that. Whereas with the Reds, 
you could give them credit for investing a few years ago and you could say that they had terrible timing in that they made some investments and they got better just in time for the pandemic to hit and all they had to show for it was squeaking into a playoff spot in the 60-game season, not winning a game, right, and then not being able to capitalize on being better with increased attendance because no one was going to games. So I sympathize to some extent about the timing of the way that worked out, but it still just sucks that they are, I mean, they're getting talent back, right, at least in some of these moves, but it's also talent that's like further away and not nearly as major league ready as what Oakland's getting back. So maybe that's the distinction that it seems like the A's are, you know, they've never really torn down or or done a full tank style rebuild i mean they are always kind of shuffling their roster but they haven't had sustained periods of being terrible and it seems like they're angling to be good again sometime soon whereas with the reds who knows when they might be good again yeah i think too there's i don't know if this is a fair like mental distinction to draw because it isn't that different to say not that this is a strict policy but to to operate such that you're like, once guys hit arbitration, we're keen to move them versus we can't, you know, we're going to pass Wade Miley through waivers to avoid paying not only for his deal, but for the the buyout, meaning that we'll get nothing in return, right? Like there's just, I don't know that those are actually philosophically that different from one another, but for some reason I am treating them as as philosophically (laughs) different. And I don't know that that is credit that I should be giving to the A's Mm -hmm. (laughs) in this case. I think part of it, you're right to say, is the the sense that the Central is so winnable and there were good players on this roster to go win a, a very winnable division. I think the road is is harder and longer in the West, which isn't to say that it's impossible because we've seen Oakland be a postseason team pretty recently, right? And so, you know, it's not as if they they can't do it, but they do have sort of more powerhouse teams in their division or at least teams that, you know, will be thorny for them to deal with even if they aren't all as good as as Houston. So I think that factors into our analysis here. And I think you're right that something about it shifting from being sort of a consistent posture to such a dramatic sort of about face in terms of your commitment to being competitive is is informing part of why I'm reacting this way. But mm-hmm. it sure is, you know, it sure is cheap. <laughs> yeah, right. Like their approach is just real, real cheap. Like there's no way to describe it other than that. Like it yeah. does seem quite clear that the primary motivation for these moves is to to save money. And it doesn't mean that they haven't gotten some some players back who are intriguing in their own way but you're right to say that you know a lot of them are further away than some of the guys who went to Oakland and you know I think it's not that Pache isn't a divisive prospect but like Chase Petty's a really divisive prospect Mm -hmm. so it's not like they have a slam dunk there we really like Brandon Williamson if you go check out Jay Jaffe's write-up of this deal like you'll have you get to see what Brandon Williamson looked like on Sunday because <laughs> mm-hmm. he threw on a Mariners backfield the day before he was traded and Eric got video of it. But, you know, we've been high on him. I know BA likes him a lot too, but, you know, they have, they literally have Sonny Gray. <laughs> like they mm-hmm. seem like they're literally going to get rid of Luis Castillo. So I don't, 
love it for for them. It is just such an extreme version of of penny pinching. And I think as we said several times over the course of the lockout, like you shouldn't just have like a given god given right to own a baseball team. Like if this is how you're going to conduct yourself, maybe the league would be better off if you sold. Yeah, because the Mariners trade especially, that seems like a salary dump. I mean, Winker is a really good player. <laughs> He's... Winker's a really good player. <laughs> Got 20 feet of neck and a bunch yep. of more feet of home runs. And a lot of unbaseability, and that seems like partly, well, we'll just get rid of Suarez's contract. And, and Suarez has had a couple down seasons for sure and was asked to play out of position, as a lot of Reds have been. And I know he bounced back late last year. He had a great September, so maybe the Mariners are getting a, a great full-season bounce-back candidate here. But because he had some money coming to him, you know, more than his very recent performance might have justified, I suppose. But, you know, 11 point something million for the next few years, each of the next few years, and then a, a team option. I mean, that might end up being quite reasonable, depending on if he can get back to being a two to three win player again, which wouldn't be surprising. But to get Winker and Suarez and not have to give up really any very important players, at least presently, that seems like a coup for Mr. DePoto. He was ready to transact, and indeed he did. And that seems like it's a, a big boon to Seattle's lineup. Yeah. Now, the fact that they seem to be kind of done on the position player side, I don't know that I love that. Like, I, I could have done with more. We'll see mm -hmm. if they, they managed to do more. Uh, DePoto yesterday said that they're pretty set when it comes to the lineup, although I'm curious how guys like, you know, Suzuki and Conforto's markets might develop. I can kind of see how with Suarez on board and Winker, like maybe you're you're kind of taking yourself out of the Bryant sweepstakes, but wouldn't hate more outfield reinforcement. Just why not? I know mm -hmm. someone's coming, but also... Kyle Lewis isn't going to be ready for opening day. So go get mm -hmm. a go get another guy, I say. But that they will shift some of their attention to to the starting pitcher market. Jerry, you couldn't have gotten Luis Castillo. I hear the Reds are tearing <laughs> down. Yeah. Well, we talked last time about the fact that this new CBA didn't really make any meaningful changes to address what we are not calling tanking, but are potentially calling banking or nutting <laughs> or possibly both. The Reds are making a run at owning the term nutting, even as much as Mr. Nutting I have himself. so many regrets. <laughs> I think I have regret. <laughs> so we are seeing two teams do just what we talked about last time, which is not tanking in terms of getting bad in order to get better draft picks. You know, maybe you could say that the A's are at least doing this with an eye toward contending again sometime soon within their ownership imposed payroll limits, whereas with the Reds, it mainly seems to be about banking those dollars that yep. they're going to get regardless of whether they win or not. So. That's unfortunate, and I feel sorry for Reds fans. I feel sorry for Joey Votto, who just got a tiny little taste of contention again there, and now either has to stick around with a loser or leave, and he's certainly someone in that Freeman camp of you kind of hope that he would spend his whole career there, but you also hope that they would put a contending team around him. So... One move the Reds made was to trade Sonny Gray to the Twins, and maybe that can be our segue to the Twins here. Now, that move 
made plenty of sense because the Twins need pitching. They yeah. need pitching as much as any potentially contending team needs pitching. Yeah. Even with Sonny Gray, I think they are 21st on the Fangraphs depth chart when it comes to projected value from starting pitchers. But getting Gray over whatever replacement or sub-replacement level pitcher that they would have had in that rotation instead, that's a significant upgrade. And if you're just giving up a wild card who's not going to be ready for years under the best of circumstances, and you're a team that, at least position player-wise, is sort of set up to win now, that makes a ton of sense. What I think was maybe more confounding on both sides, potentially, is the subsequent trade that the Twins made with the Yankees. And in this deal... The Twins traded Josh Donaldson and Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, whom they had acquired in yet another trade with the Rangers for Mitch Garver. And they also traded backup catcher Ben Rortvet, and they got back Gary Sanchez and Gio Urshela. So none of these trades netted them more pitching. This was shuffling around position players. They traded Mitch Garver, who has been somewhat injury prone and is, you know, past 30 already, but he did bounce back with a a pretty good year last year. They have swapped him now for Gary Sanchez, and they acquired Isaiah Kiner-Falefa only to deal him away in exchange for Gio Urshela, who replaces Josh Donaldson. So, They are, at least for the moment, left without an obvious shortstop candidate, which is why a lot of people have said, well, maybe this is setting up something else, right? Maybe Trevor Story signs with the Twins or someone of that nature because... Otherwise, it looks like... Otherwise, it's really weird. Yeah, it's trimming salary and leaving another new hole there and not addressing the pitching deficit. So we've talked before about how it seems like some of their moves suggest that they're trying to win now and others suggest that they're not. And you get why they would maybe deal Jose Barrios if they got great prospects back. But how does that work with extending Buxton and other moves that they've made or not made? So... It seems like they're kind of caught in between, and maybe there is going to be a a big signing that happens here. There's not a lot of impact pitching left on the market here, so I don't know how they can turn that rotation into not even a strength, but maybe just par for the course. But this was one that I think kind of confused people on both the Yankees and Twins fan bases sides because Yankees fans, I mean, Gary Sanchez seems like kind of your classic change of scenery candidate. Yeah. In that a lot of people were just sort of sick of watching him attempt to catch and maybe the fact that he really raised expectations with how he hit when he first came up and he has continued to be a productive hitter for a catcher but has also been an exploitable and inconsistent one and a lot of people love Urshela for what he did and stepping in in that injury-plagued season and doing so well. And then it turns out that he's able to hit as well as play pretty good defense or at least good-looking defense. So Donaldson, you know, he's under team control for a couple more years with, what, $50 million coming to him. And so partly this was about the Twins getting out from under that maybe, but he's also still a productive player when he's healthy, which is a big caveat in Josh Donaldson's case. So a lot of moving parts here, and maybe there are subsequent moves to come on both sides that will make the grand plan more clear. Maybe. 
Maybe <laughs> they will. I mean, this makes me think that they feel confident around story on the Twins side. I'm just realizing how Yankee's shortstop position is currently ranked 20th in our depth chart rankings because of Isaiah Connor Falefa. And so even though that's better than the 30th the Rangers were at last year, I'm still going to hear about this, aren't I, Ben? I'm still going to hear about it. <laughs> Probably going to hear about it in positional power rankings. Don't worry. It's fine. I don't know. It's just very, it feels like the kind of thing that we can't judge until it's complete because otherwise yeah. a lot of this isn't, it's not that it's nonsensical. It just doesn't really help very much. You know, it helps some. I mean, I think that there are aspects of this that are to each of the team's benefit. I'm not crazy about Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, at least as a bat, but I think mm -hmm. that given what we've seen in, at shortstop yeah. from the Yankees over the last, you know, two years. Like, I get the appeal there. I think that mm -hmm. it's good for Gary to get a shot in another place with a, a catching coach mm -hmm. that might, you know, where he might jive well. Yeah, although the, the catching coach who kind of fixed Mitch Garver is now on the Yankees. Right, <laughs> They poached yeah. that catching coach, but yeah. who knows? Maybe who knows? a different catching coach, you know? <laughs> yeah, maybe that'll help. I mean, I think that I just, you have a guy like him with a career like he's had and, it can be a relief for everyone when he gets an opportunity in a different place and can just get a fresh start without the pressure of his existing situation. And, you know, I don't want to imply that Gary can't like deal with the bright lights of New York. Like that always, that argument always feels kind of icky to me, but I, I think that there's something to be said for starting over in a new spot. So hopefully that works out well for him, but yeah, I don't know. Like, it's just weird. It's just a weird move absent other moves. So mm -hmm. I guess I will hold off on saying that it is an objectively weird move until, I don't know, Trevor Story signs somewhere else, I guess. Mm -hmm. But yeah. it does strike me as, as pretty strange, at least on the Twins' part. So. I yeah, I mean, Story saves you some runs on defense, so if you can't go get a right. good top-of-the-market pitcher at this point, then maybe getting a great defensive shortstop is one way to equalize things, although right. that is what Kiner Falefa was. He right. was a great defensive shortstop, right. but doesn't contribute so much offensively, so... I don't know, maybe there's more to unlock with him or maybe the Yankees make some other splash. I mean, I right. think, you know, Carlos Correa has been a long shot all along. It seems like there's more smoke with him returning to Houston, which yeah. always sort of made sense on paper. I don't know what happens there. Obviously, Someone said that on this podcast a couple of times. We won't, <laughs> we won't dwell on who. We'll just mm -hmm. say that she's very smart. <laughs> Yankees fans will probably be disappointed if they end up with Isaiah Kiner-Fleifa opening day starting shortstop because, well, they always want to go get the biggest and best guy in the market, right? And that is not what Kiner-Fleifa is, and typically the Yankees have not gone like full defense, you know, light bat, great glove guy. Maybe they can get more out of his bat, but this would be a bit of a, a change, certainly from their recent shortstops, which were more in the other direction. Kiner Fleff is more like what Andrelton Simmons was supposed to be for the Twins and then maybe wasn't really anymore. And now he's gone to the Cubs. So we'll see. Obviously, he has a lot of positional versatility and he could end up in some sort of multi-position role. Mm -hmm. If there is another move to be made, but 
you know, Donaldson, another big hitter if he's in the lineup and another injury risk in that lineup. Right. So <laughs> you look at a lineup with uh, Judge and Stanton and LeMahieu and Donaldson and all of these guys. And even if you're punting offense at catcher a little bit and maybe shortstop too, it's still a pretty strong lineup. But how often are those guys going to be healthy and in the lineup at the same time? And that's putting aside the more drama-driven, gossipy storyline about how is Josh Donaldson going to get along with Garrett Cole, who had exchanges with him last year about spider tack, and they were going back and forth. I feel like that sort of thing is always overblown because when the players are on the same side, they almost always make up and yeah. bury the hatchet. And it's like, well, you were the enemy, you know, yeah. you were the guy I was trying to hit against at that time. And so it annoyed me that maybe you were using some sticky stuff and now we're on the same side. So use whatever you want because it benefits me. So I feel like that will probably be fine. Although Donaldson, maybe not the easiest guy to get along with in general, it seems, but I would imagine that that will not be a big rift in the clubhouse. And you got another big bat in that lineup, if healthy. And you also have a new beef boy, although a, a different type of beef boy, because I don't know whether you've seen Ben Wortvet, the Yankees' new backup catcher, presumably. He is not tall vertically, but he is extremely built and has probably the highest like forearm slash bicep to height ratio that I have possibly ever seen. And if you haven't seen a picture of Ben Rortvet's forearms and just arms in general, I'd encourage you all to look at one and I will link you to one as I just linked you, Meg, to an article that was published by MLB.com last June, headline, Twins Rookies Muscles, quote, touched by God. <laughs> so he is uh, only 5'10", listed at 5'10", and I don't know whether to believe that, but his arms are extremely large. It looks like he has huge forearms and then like half a full forearm on top of... He's got of. like hams on his shoulders. He's got like a yeah. whole bit of... He's got like a whole ham. He's got like a forearm and a half. It's like a, a full forearm on top of a regular looking forearm. It looks anatomically incorrect almost. It, it looks like uh, the, the comic book artist Rob Liefeld who's always uh, mocked for drawing like too many muscles. <laughs> that kind of looks like what Ben Rortfred is like. And ironically it doesn't seem like he has all that much power or at least he hasn't unlocked it yet but he's a good framer and I guess uh, forearms are pretty important for framing you need that forearm strength not to have your arms move so get used to another beef boy who is uh, not as tall but can certainly <laughs> stack up forearm to forearm I feel like I need to do a better job like describing the beef boy <laughs> right because I I and maybe I need to clarify for myself like what is a beef boy mean in my heart you know what mm -hmm. is what do I think of as a as a beef boy? Because yeah. last year I did lump. You know I I lumped for instance Joey Gallo and mm -hmm. uh, and Anthony Rizzo in with the beef boys, and I think that there are a couple of different sorts of beef boys. They exist on a beef boy continuum that yeah. folds around on one side to the barrelman continuum, right? <laughs> so there's like that part of the beef boy spectrum that is more in the like vogel back range. I think that like this this is like you know have we ever seen 
him and and Tyler O'Neill in the same place. You right. know, are they mm-hmm. doing Spider-Man memes? So, mm-hmm. you know, when you have guys who are not statuesque but are carrying around what seem like very heavy arms, mm-hmm. um, that is a particular kind of beef boy. And then right. there are the the towering beef boys, and that's yes. where you have your you know your your judges and your Stantons and your and we're your, also quite muscular and in your galas, but yes. right. I mean, like certainly muscular and. And mm-hmm. because of the body issue, we know just how muscular when it comes to Stanton <laughs> at the very least, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that is a, a particular, within the, the if we were presenting a beef boy taxonomy, um, that is a discrete sub, subtype of beef boy relative right. to the Tyler O'Neill beef boy, where you are, you're all arm or mostly arm, you know, you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're very much of your arms. Um, yes. And then there are the, the towering beef boys. And then there are the, they are not squat in a, in a real way because they are baseball players. And so even when they are not tall, they tend to tower over me, but then there are the, the sort of more um, compact beef right. boys and that would be mm-hmm. like your Luke Voigt's and your mm-hmm. Anthony Rizzo's you know they are they are of their own kind so uh, <laughs> it's important to to specify these things to have a beef boy taxonomy that yeah. is adequately explained yeah. so yes yeah, I mean, like these are these are the the pieces that you all lose because of how busy I am editing. So we can <laughs> yeah. be grateful that I have a podcast to yeah. you know express my views on the different kinds of beef boys. So, mm-hmm. all right, well, just a, a few more major moves we can name check before we close here. We mentioned the Mets trading for Chris Bassett, and that gives them. Currently, the best projected rotation, according to the Fangrass depth charts. So you have Bassett basically as your fifth starter now. I I don't know where he slots in, but you have Jacob DeCrom at the top. You have Max Scherzer. You have Bassett. You have Taiwan Walker. You have Carlos Carrasco. Plenty of question marks with some of those guys. Obviously, you worry about Jacob deGrom and the injury risk there, and Max Scherzer is going to turn 38, and Carlos Carrasco has certainly been unavailable at times too. And so I wouldn't say that there are no big potentials for pitfalls and for things to fall apart. It is, after all, the Mets that we are talking about here. But on paper, currently... They have the highest projected starting pitcher war, and Bassett goes a long way, I think, toward ensuring that they have the depth to survive if some of the top guys were to miss time. And Bassett, of course, missed time himself last year, and he had that really scary-looking head injury where he was hit by a line drive, and he was able to return after that briefly. And I guess there's always the potential that there could be long-term effects from that. But he, like Olsen, has been another player who has just been really good for a while now and has probably not quite garnered the national notoriety that he would have because he was in Oakland. So that's a, a big get for them. And they also signed Adam out of Eno. And it basically seems like Steve Cohen is willing to just break right through the new tax tier that was implemented seemingly almost specifically to stop Steve Cohen from spending. So right. if you're a Mets fan, you can certainly have mixed feelings about Cohen in many respects, but you probably have to be pretty happy about the investments he is making in the Major League roster right now. Yeah, I think that you do. I think that I don't know that we have to hand it to him, but the, <laughs> I mean, like the competitive balance tax doesn't put you in jail. It just 
you know, they just send you a bill. So <laughs> Other things that he has done <laughs> could potentially. Who could say? But, <laughs> um, but you know, it doesn't it doesn't come with <laughs> a restriction of one's freedom. It just mm-hmm. means that they're going to say, hey, you got to write us a check in January. And so I think that there's something about being wealthy enough to say like, yeah, tax me. That mm-hmm. has to be fairly irritating. Yeah, it's like F you many, as they say. Right, you know. to to some of the other owners, but I'm glad mm-hmm. to see him looking at it and saying, okay, like, fine. Yeah, it's unfortunate that you have to choose between, like, Bob Castellini and Steve Cohen. It's like <laughs> either you have someone who is not willing to invest in the payroll or you have someone who is, but, like, also has done insider trading and stuff (laughs) so it's either or i guess when you're talking about billionaires or multi multi millionaires or multi multi billionaires but i guess uh if you have to pick one you want the one who spends and it certainly seems like the mets are doing that and i guess in the same vein the Blue Jays signed Yusei Kikuchi to round out their rotation, yeah. which also looks quite strong. And there's the question of, are they getting early season Yusei Kikuchi, all-star yeah. Yusei Kikuchi? Or are they getting late season Yusei Kikuchi, who kind of fell apart? But you look at that rotation, and it's Jose Brios, it's Kevin Gossman, it's Hunchen Ryu, it's Kikuchi, it's Alec Manoa. And then you have, like, Nate Pearson and Stripling around as sixth and seventh starters. I mean, that is a pretty strong unit, too. And you think of all the offense that they already have. I mean, there's a a lot to like about that team. They barely missed the playoffs last year. They had the talent and the underlying performance of a playoff team, even in a 10-team playoff system. And so now, like, they should have a starter going every day who gives that lineup a good chance to win. Yeah, and we should probably take a moment here to reflect upon Kikuchi, whose contract situation was so strange. Like we, yeah, when we did our top fifty free agents, you know, our listeners might recall that, like, you know, we pull on a bunch of guys, we crowdsource a bunch of players, far more than we ever put on the top fifty to get a sense of what the the crowd thinks a player will receive. And we didn't even pull on Kikuchi because we were so convinced that he would exercise his player option given the back half of the season that he had. And we wondered, like, is he going to end up going back to Japan? He had turned down $13 million. And, you know, he ends up doing relatively well for himself and securing a longer-term deal. And so, like, good for for him, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the average annual value is only slightly less than the player option, and he now has a guaranteed contract through 2024, so. Yeah, and also in that vein, Carlos Rodon signed with the Giants oh, yeah. for <laughs> that was like before the deluge of other moves for two years and forty four million, and he's someone who didn't get a qualifying offer from the White Sox, so which weird. that yeah, was a weird choice. Maybe they want that one back now, but I bet they do. <laughs> but at the time, that made you wonder what is his market going to be like because he's someone who's had all sorts of injury issues, including last year, and he came back and he was hampered by the injury and he wasn't able to go deep into. Games and they were really just using kid gloves to try to get him through that season and the playoffs. And so, given that you have to think that the White Sox know as much about the state of his arm as anyone else, if not right. more so, the fact that they were not interested in bringing him back and not even interested in extending the qualifying offer. Which makes you think either that they thought that there wouldn't be a market out there or that they just didn't want him back on those terms under any circumstances and thought he might accept it. 
obviously the Giants feel a bit more sanguine about his health and his prospects. And I guess you'd have to feel good about him going to that team that at least recently has managed to get more out of pitchers like Wood and DiScafani and Gossman and even Cueto last year and on and on. So if there's any team that maybe could keep him healthy and keep him pitching at that level, maybe it's the Giants and their Brian Bannister brain trust. But they have kind of rebuilt their rotation a tad too because they lost Gossman and they still have Webb at the top there and they brought back DiScafani and Wood and then they brought in Alex Cobb. And so you're counting on Cobb and Rodon to stay healthy. They also brought in Carlos Martinez. So there are a bunch of arms there that you just kind of hope that they can maximize again and keep in the rotation because a a big part of their success last year was the fact that they didn't have a ton of rotation depth but they barely had to use any of it because their top guys were just almost always available and that's tough to sustain but gives them more margin for error the more players that they can bring on yeah and gosh i wonder you know i like i kind of forgot about rodon I kind of forgot that yeah. that happened, Ben, because it that happened on Friday. Ago. Yeah, You have to wonder, like him going early like he did is interesting in terms of the rest of the market. Like I wonder if Kikuchi's contract benefited a little bit from him having gone early. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that it's a good fit of team to player. You're right that the, the sort of injury bugaboo or potential for it still lingers, but I don't know. Maybe maybe when you work for a team, you become hardened against that possibility. You're just like, you could all break at any time. So Yeah, right. And in other news involving lefty starting pitchers signing in the NL West who didn't get qualifying offers, <laughs> Clayton Kershaw, yeah. who signed with the Dodgers. That happened too. And that felt like a fait accompli, and it seemed like, well, he was always going to go back there. But hey, Freddie Freeman didn't go back to the Braves, so you never know. And there was some talk about Clayton Kershaw going to the Rangers and being closer to home. And he didn't get a qualifying offer reportedly. The Dodgers seemingly almost did him a courtesy of not extending one so as not to make him make a decision at the time because he wasn't sure how his arm would feel and what he would want to do. And he ended up signing for, I guess, a little less than the qualifying offer would have been anyway, one year and $17 with some incentives that could bring it up a bit more. But I just want to see Clayton Kershaw in a Dodgers uniform, hopefully forever, but as long as possible. And no one knows how many innings he will be available to pitch, but whenever he has been able to pitch, even the post-peak decline phase, Kershaw has been extremely effective. So long may he continue to pitch and continue to pitch for the Dodgers as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I think that it's the sort of thing where he will... Well, he'll probably start going as he has of late, like year to year, and Los Angeles will want to employ him as long as he's able to turn in seasons even like 2021 where he had, you know, injury stuff and couldn't pitch for the whole year, but was still good when he did. And, you know, I imagine he'll get to a point where he, I wonder if he will just get to a point where he would prefer to be done rather than switch teams. Like if he just stays a Dodger long enough, like I think he strikes me as the the kind of person who has an appreciation for what that means to be with one franchise your entire career. And it's not like he, you know, is wanting for money. He's made plenty of money in his career. So he -hmm. might be one of those guys. And this is particularly rare for pitchers. Who's in a position to kind of decide when, when he goes out and what the circumstances of that will be. And the relationship he seems to have with that organization suggests that they will be, 
amenable to that within reason. So that's mm-hmm. that's pretty cool. You know, we don't we don't always get that. So yeah. And we have also seen some National League teams prepare for life in the Universal DH era. All right, Nelson Cruz. (laughs) Yeah, Nelson Cruz signed with the Nationals, and Andrew McCutcheon signed with the Brewers. I don't know how much he'll be DHing and how much he'll be playing outfield, but he can still crush lefties. And yeah, Cruz, 42 years young, still out there raking, and I know that... He had some of his rates fall off a bit when he was with the Rays after the trade last year, but I think the underlying metrics were still pretty strong. It seems like he can still hit, and it's just yet another one-year deal for him. He just goes year to year, and he just keeps finding suitors and probably more suitors than there would have been if not for the Universal DH. And so the Nationals may be a somewhat surprising choice, but... Not surprising in the fact that I guess they need someone to hit behind Juan yeah. Soto. I was kind of curious, like, what will Juan Soto's walk rate be this oh year? Oh, my God. Because, like, <laughs> last year in the second half of the season, like, when he had no lineup protection for long stretches, I mean, he was walking, like, a quarter of the time. Yeah. And we could have seen that happen all season, which would have been fun in some ways, but also like even if he's just as productive walking constantly, I don't want to see the bat taken out of his hands because he also really rakes and can hit the ball far and hard too. So you put Cruz behind him, pitchers have a little more reason to throw one Soto a hittable pitch from time to time. So that's nice. Yeah, I think that we will, you know, Cruz has a reputation as a really great clubhouse guy. And not that, you know, (laughs) I don't want to suggest that Juan Soto needs hitting tips because that's (laughs) absurd. Mm -hmm. But he does seem like someone who will enjoy Cruz's clubhouse presence because everyone does seemingly. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like that's a nice bit of business there. Mm -hmm. I imagine that assuming he doesn't get hit with the I'm finally old stick that he will be on a playoff team come come the second half. But in the meantime, we can watch him sort of keep slugging and see as you said what what soto can do with you know actual lineup protection and then Mm -hmm. uh we will kind of go from there so it's weird i find it very strange that of all the nl clubs that no one was gonna do better with arguably the best dh option in the field Mm -hmm. but i don't know seems fine sure nelson cruz why not yeah I guess I misspoke. He is not yet 42. He does not turn 42 until July 1st. Right. I don't want to make you any older than you actually are, Mr. Cruz. He doesn't but... seem self-conscious about it. Mm-hmm. I think no. it's fine. Yeah. No, he doesn't hit like a 41 or 42-year-old, so no need to be. But yes, I guess there might be some teams that felt like, well, we want to keep some flexibility in the DH spot. We've certainly seen a lot of teams use that spot as kind of a catch-all for players who are heard or don't have an assigned position and you want to spread plate appearances around. But when you can get Nelson Cruz, someone who, at least in the recent past and not so recent past, you can count on for a 130 or better WRC Plus generally, you're pretty okay penciling that player in day after day. So. All right. Well, there was only one minor move I wanted to mention, other than Williams, of course, going to the Marlins. Sure. And uh, don't have a whole lot to say about that one. It's a minor league deal. Last time we talked about Williams, we were uh, expressing some disapproval for him sucker yeah. punching someone, essentially, don't in the Winter that. Leagues. No. And I don't know if that had any effect on his market. But if you're someone who enjoys watching Williams Astadio play, as I am... 
then hopefully the Marlins could be a good place for him to do that and maybe do that more regularly than he was able to do with the Twins. So that's nice. The only other thing was Kurt Suzuki resigning with the Angels. Sure. Minor move. Yeah. <laughs> Backup catcher move here. Not really worth mentioning, except for the fact that I am a prolific watcher of the Angels, and this means that I will have to see more Kurt Suzuki on my screen in 2022. Not thrilled about that. And as someone who watches the Angels all the time because of Otani and because of Trout, hopefully, I am someone who wants to see a competitive team around them and potentially even for those guys to make the playoffs. That would be nice. And so it's been sort of deflating to watch them not do anything as all of these other teams were doing things. Now, they weren't trading away any of their good players, so I guess you take what you can get. But they weren't really adding to their roster, and they haven't added a whole lot to it this offseason. They added Noah Syndergaard, who is promising and talented, but hardly the 150 or 200-inning guy that they have been lacking for so long. They've been lacking a 100-inning guy in some seasons. So they don't have a ton more rotation certainty, and to bring back Kurt Suzuki, that just seems like a low imagination move or just like a low ceiling move, sort of. Like, he's 38 at this point. He seems pretty washed just watching him last year like he didn't hit. And I know he had hit for a few seasons before that. He actually had sort of a late career offensive renaissance, but... I don't know that I buy that that's still going to happen. Maybe he had some bad Babbitt luck last year, but he's not a hitter at this point in his career, I don't think. And he is not a framer. He is reliably one of the worst framers, which I take personally, sort of, because he was often the personal catcher of Shohei Otani. The Angels have a much better receiver in Max Stassi, and I hope that those two work together more often this year because I just want to see Otani have the best performance that he can. And even if he vibes well with Suzuki on a personal level in some way, I think it would be helpful for him to work with Stassi more. So again, like it's a backup catcher move. It doesn't make all that much difference probably, but it just seems like a continuation of the Angels like having enough to give you hope because as long as they have Trout and Otani and hopefully a healthy Rendon, they certainly have enough to contend in theory, but then not making the move or not making the right move that pushes them over the hump. And you just, you shouldn't have to do that much to get over the hump when you start with (laughs) that duo or that trio. So I'm hoping they can defy recent history somehow, but I'm not super optimistic based on their recent activity. So if they sign Carlos Correa or Trevor Story or someone at this point, like there are still maybe moves that can be made, but they're running out of options to make a major difference. Yeah, I think that you're right that like in a vacuum, this is like whatever, who even cares? But Mm -hmm. within the the sort of world where we would like to see a very competitive and robust Angels team propel players that we like a lot to the postseason and spare you from having to watch like really very (laughs) bad framing. Yeah, You know, this doesn't clear either of those bars. So that's a bummer. I don't know how long I'll have to watch framing at all. So let me go out on a high note here. Right. Let me watch maybe this frame. <laughs> yeah, maybe this will turn you into a, a, a rope yeah. ozone joker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, maybe this will be what pushes you over the edge. But yes, it, it does seem like the window they have to really meaningfully improve the roster is rapidly closing if it hasn't already. And they don't exactly have any like really terrific farm system depth to trade from to go secure, say, 
Luis Castillo, who is probably very available because of mm-hmm. what the Reds have done. So they just seem like the the real tool they had to improve themselves this offseason was to spend. And that spending needed to come both at a greater volume and much earlier in the calendar for it to make a difference because, you know, they're not in they're not in the market for Carlos Correa. They don't really that's not the most pressing need, although, you know, shortstop isn't exactly like a, an area of strength. So I don't know, man, like it's it's just sort of a bummer. You want there to be more for our very favorite, our very favorites, and mm-hmm. we're not maybe going to get it. Can I can I admit to something? Sure. It's not that I forgot that Anthony Rendon exists, but I maybe forgot that <laughs> Anthony Rendon exists. So yeah, like if Anthony Rendon is healthy, like that's mm-hmm. that could be pretty great. But yes. One of the very best players in baseball very recently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Gosh, it would be. I mean, it won't happen, but we have the Angels as having like the fourth worst projection for uh, shortstop. They are worse mm-hmm. off in that department than both the Orioles and the D-backs, which isn't like a stack you want to be behind. <laughs> so that would be sure cool if they swooped in at the last minute, but that's not going to happen. They're not going to do that. Artie Moreno didn't want to raise the CBT thresholds at all. Yeah. He's not spending money. Yeah, doesn't want to pay minor leaguers even. So, yeah. All right. Well, that's all I got. Apologies to everyone whose uh, team's moves we did not discuss. But again, Meg and the Fangraph staff have been very diligent in covering even the most minor of moves. So just go to Fangraphs and look at the free agent signing and trade tags, and you can find a whole long litany of posts there that cover every conceivable thing that has happened. And I, the managing editor of Fangraphs, might even be preparing a big summary post that we will update as more signings come so that if you are flummoxed by the blog roll, you don't have to worry about that. But yeah, all of our writers have done a really tremendous job. As always, John Taylor has done a fantastic job helping to bear the editorial load. So Mm -hmm. it has been quite busy. We really appreciate everyone coming and hanging out with us at the site. It's nice to be able to chat with you all about things that aren't the CBT, even though, as you said, the CBT is the river that (laughs) runs through every signing. But it Mm -hmm. is nice to get to contemplate what some of these teams are going to look like with fun free agents on their rosters who weren't there when uh, various days began. And I will probably remember most of them by July, just in time for some of them to get traded. (laughs) All right. Well, we will end this episode and start the production process, hopefully before many more moves are made, although we will see. That will do it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening, as always, and thanks to everyone, or everyone who has, for supporting the podcast on Patreon, which you can do by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going and help us stay ad-free while ensuring themselves access to some perks. Anthony Varco, Lee Marr, Will Marshalek, Leland Daggett, and Demo. Thanks to all of you. Sign up to Patreon to get access to monthly bonus pods with me and Meg and access to the Effectively Wild Patreon Discord group in addition to other perks. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. Yet another forum for Effectively Wild listeners to discuss moves and the podcast itself. You can find another one on Reddit at r slash Effectively Wild. And of course, you can email me and Meg directly at podcast at fancrafts.com. Send us your thoughts and your questions and your comments and suggestions. You can also message us via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. And we will be back with another action-packed episode a little later this week. 